uh, first of all, I, I want you to know that uh, usually when uh, I teach uh, a lesson out of Romans at SMBI, that I usually have an hour and a half time to, uh, to cover the lesson. And so uh, if, uh, if you ex expect to um, uh, me to cover all of the details that is found, that are found in Romans chapter 16, I probably will need that hour and a half. Uh, so uh, uh, be that as it may, uh, I, uh, I want to thank uh, the Dave and the leadership team for uh, allowing me to give this uh, final lesson uh, in the, the book of Romans that is to be included in a, an audio a series on, on, uh, of uh, my teaching sessions there. Um, Paul begins the epistle to the Romans in, in chapter 1 and verse 1 by introducing himself and giving a personal word of testimony as to what defines him as a Christian by saying, I'm Paul a bound servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Then, after giving an extensive exposition of the gospel and the doctrine of salvation in the first eight chapters of Romans, and beginning in chapter 12, then, Paul passionately exhorts the Christians in Rome to be fully consecrated to God, and uh, instructs them in some uh, practical aspects of Christian living. Well, that takes us then uh, to Romans chapter 15, in about the middle of the chapter, uh, where uh, uh, Paul begins to bring this epistle to the Romans to a close. Uh, and uh, beginning there, at about the middle of chapter 15, Paul again, be, again becomes personal and explains and defines his calling as the apostle to the Gentiles. And, uh, and he instructs them uh, in uh, some um, few practical, more practical things in relation to their Christian lives. But here, at the beginning, in the middle of chapter 15, uh, Paul gives us a glimpse into his life and ministry and sort of tells us what, uh, what drives him, what motivates him, um, what the things that make him tick. Uh, and um, I, uh, I, I enjoy the, this section of uh, where Paul does that because... Um, I, uh, I'm interested in, uh, in the life of the Apostle Paul as well as in this epistle that he writes. Well, he, uh, so he gives us some insight into himself uh, in, uh, in a number of ways. First of all, he begins to explain that he saw his calling to be an apostle as a gift of grace. It was, it was a gift of grace. Um, and uh, I, I like to, I like to uh, remind preachers 
that uh, God has called us, not because we're so great and have such great abilities, but uh, he's, he, our calling is really a calling of grace. Uh, and uh, when we begin to realize this, this keeps us uh, from arrogance and pride and, and uh, keeps us dependent on the enabling grace of God. Uh, secondly, then, he explained that his, uh, his, his passionate desire was to preach the gospel where it had never been preached before. So uh, uh, he, he tells us in chapter 15, verse 19, in, uh, that in his three missionary journeys, he, uh, he, he preached the gospel in, in that vast area, all the way from Jerusalem uh, to northern Mesopotamia, uh, which he called Ilantrium. Uh, and, uh, he, uh, and so he, he took the gospel, beginning at Jerusalem, going north to Antioch of Syria, and then north and west through Asia Minor, and, and then he came to the uh, western edge of Asia Minor, and there he had a call from, uh, from the Lord through a vision that he should go on to Mesopotamia. So he crosses the, uh, the Aegean Sea and, and, uh, and goes to Mesopotamia, and then he turns south in, uh, from Mesopotamia, and, uh, and, and travels ancient Greece, down the peninsula, uh, all the way to Corinth, and spends uh, a number of, uh, uh, of months in Corinth, and where a church was established there. Uh, and so uh, I, uh, you know, I, so he, Paul reminds us of, uh, that he was, uh, that this was his passion, was to preach in these areas that uh, where Christ had not been preached before. Uh, and now uh, Paul had uh, some further goals and plans uh, as he writes about that in the last part of chapter 15. Uh, he, um, for, he, so he has, some, he has some plans for the next couple years, a number of years actually. Uh, he talks about this in chapter 15, verses 22 through 28. I'm not uh, going to read that section. I'm just giving you a bit of an overview here. Uh, but uh, according to my calculation, uh, Paul was close to 60 years old at uh, this particular time. We don't know for sure, but uh, it, is, uh, it is sort of my... Uh, uh, understanding that he was born about the same time that Christ was born in the, uh, the early part of the first century. And so, uh, he, uh, so he still has plans um, and goals uh, that he uh, wants to carry out. Uh, and so uh, he mentioned three things. Uh, the first is that he was planning to come to the imperial city of the city Rome and visit the church there. That's verses 22 to 24 in chapter 15. 
He also planned to uh, then take the gospel all the way, all the way to Spain. Well, uh, Rome was, in other words, just sort of a stopping over place in, in his mind as he thought about uh, uh, his, uh, his future uh, plans and goals. Uh, he was going to stop in, in, the, in the church in Rome on his way to, uh, to Spain. Um, and uh, so I, I, I see this as... Um, as significant, I, I'm impressed uh, that the Apostle Paul, at 60 years of age, uh, was uh, planning to uh, continue his missionary journey, at least do another fourth missionary journey, and uh, take the gospel all the way to, to Spain. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I, look at, uh, I, I look at a map of the uh, of this area, the um, you know the the map, uh, especially of the North Shore of the Mediterranean Sea, and and how Paul uh, sort of seemed to go from peninsula to peninsula. You know the the peninsula of Asia Minor that ju- sort of juts into the Mediterranean Sea from from the the north and 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 the east, and then he goes to. Uh, the uh, the uh, peninsula of uh, Achaia and uh, uh, minister of the gospel there, and he intends to go to the Italian um, uh, peninsula uh, and uh, visit Rome, preach the gospel there. He said in chapter one that I I uh, he intends to to preach the gospel to them also. And, uh, and then he plans to uh, travel a, uh, a, a large distance all the way to the western edge of the Mediterranean Sea where the, where the Atlantic Ocean starts and take the gospel to Spain. If you, if you draw sort of a straight line across this vast area, uh, you come up with uh, uh, about uh, 2,500 miles uh, that... Uh, that uh, it's about 2,500 miles from Jerusalem all the way to uh, the western edge of the Mediterranean Sea to the uh, area of, of Spain. Uh, that's, uh, that's an enormous territory. Uh, uh, this was not a small plan or a small goal. You know, I think of myself for 35 years uh, spending... Uh, uh, ministering the gospel in northwestern Ontario, and uh, I, uh, uh, you know, I, I ministered the gospel there in, in say a couple hundred square miles, uh, in various ways and in different times. But the Apostle Paul <laughs> did thousands uh, uh, shared the gospel in this vast area that covers thousands of square miles, and uh, he. Uh, he, he established churches in, uh, in all these areas. Um, but before he uh, uh, anticipates uh, going to Spain in this kind of way, Paul has another plan. He plans to go to Jerusalem and uh, to, uh, to personally deliver the offerings that he had been collecting on his third missionary journey as he 
came through, uh, to Asia, through Asia Minor and, and uh, Macedonia and, and now was down at Corinth where he wrote the letter to, uh, to uh, the Romans. And uh, he, all along the way, he'd been collecting offerings, money, uh, to take uh, for the, the uh, church at, at Jerusalem who was uh, going through some extensive uh, suffering and poverty at this particular time. So his, uh, he wanted to, to personally, this was a very personal thing for, for Paul, he wanted to personally uh, take these funds, this money that he collected from all these Gentile churches and take it and deliver it to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. It was very important and significant uh, to him, uh, the, for him to do that because uh, Paul understood that the, uh, the Jerusalem church was, a, was basically uh, made up of, of Jewish Christians who, who still sort of held Paul and the Gentile churches at arm's length. <laughs> and somehow Paul had a goal of something, somehow uh, bringing these two, I don't want to call them factions, but these two uh, churches, the Gentile church and the Jewish church, bring them together. Uh, and uh, I believe that he, he uh, intended that uh, going to Jerusalem to deliver the, this money uh, to the poor Christians in Jerusalem was, was going to help to uh, bring unanimity and, and, and uh, oneness to the church at large. And that was a driving interest in his life. Well, finally, at the end of Romans 15, Paul requests prayer for these endeavors that he is venturing into. And uh, when I read uh, that prayer in chapter 15, the end of chapter 15, uh, let, let me just uh, read that so we have it in our mind. He says, now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from those in Judea who do not believe, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints." Now, uh, let me also just mention that all along the way, as Paul was collecting the, these, this money uh, for the, uh, from the Gentile churches, that, that there were people that were warning him, prophets that were warning him and, and, and said, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going you're gonna to suffer there. You're, 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 you know? And, um, and so uh, uh, Paul... Uh, heard that, and uh, he sort of anticipated that, but it didn't stop him. Uh, when he landed on the uh, eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea, when on his way to Jerusalem, he uh, there was a, a prophet there that that took a, a cord and took a, the uh, and, and bound his hands and said, this is what's going to happen to you at Jerusalem. And the people said, don't go, don't go. And Paul said, what do you mean? 
uh, carrying on like this. I, I'm, I'm not only willing to suffer, but I'm willing to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was how intense Paul felt. And, but here Paul asked for prayer for this particular venture itself. I, I'm impressed with that. Um, you know, how that... Um, um, he... Uh, he, he he, he sort of has a note of desperation in his request for prayer, as you noticed here, especially in verse 19. He says, I just, I'm begging for you <laughs> to, to pray for me. Um, and, uh, and so um, it, it, uh, all of this sort of gives us a peek at the fact that Paul keenly felt his personal inadequacies in all of this. You know, we often think that great men of God, like Paul, can somehow run on their own momentum, raging across vast regions of the Roman Empire with the gospel, never running out of steam, <laughs> as it were. Um, and, uh, but here, the, uh, we have the great apostle asking, yes, pleading for prayer from the saints in Rome. Well, I, um, I took uh, quite a bit of time to give you a sort of an introduction to, uh, to, this, uh, to, to, to this last part of the book of Romans. Uh, but uh, I, I just want us to, to get this glimpse into the life of the Apostle Paul. Well, so then in chapter uh, 16, uh, there, there, there seems to be, uh, is where Paul begins to then bring the, the epistle to the Romans to a close. And uh, so I consider the, what Paul writes further in chapter 16 to be sort of an, an, an uh, uh, epilogue of, uh, the, to, of the epistle. Um, so uh, you have been encouraged to read chapter 16. I'm not going to ask how many of you have done that. Uh, but if, uh, if you, you would have been one of my students at SMBI, uh, I would not have only forced you to read chapter 16. But uh, I would have required of you, with the threat of bad grades, to, uh, to, do, uh, to answer some study questions that would help get you into uh, the, uh, this final chapter of the Book of Romans. Uh, but uh, I've been, I didn't, I've been gracious, I'm being gracious to you uh, here and not asking you to do that. Um, but um, I really would have liked to. Uh, you know, the teacher in me just would have sort of itched uh, to, uh, uh, again, have papers to grade and uh, uh, how you see the content of uh, Romans chapter 16. Um, and uh, uh, Ivan said that uh, he, he wasn't going to read chapter 16 because of all the, uh, 
the uh, names, the difficult Greek and Roman and Jewish names that are included there. Well, I have the same problem, probably even more than he does. I'm not as intelligent as Ivan. Uh, and uh, so I, I also have this problem. And uh, so I, I'm not going to take the time to read uh, chapter 16. I'm just going to sort of go through chapter 16, a portion by portion, to help us cover uh, this uh, epilogue what Paul says in this epilogue of Romans chapter 16. Um, the, the content of Romans chapter 16, then, is, uh, is a chapter full of salutations. I, I, if you read that, you've noticed that. Uh, first of all, uh, there are, uh, it's a large section where Paul salutes or greets um, more than... 25 individuals, um, um, 25 people who were members of the church in Rome that he personally seemed to, to know. Uh, these were brothers and sisters in Christ with whom in other settings during Paul's 20 years of ministry up to now, uh, when Paul stormed across the Roman Empire with the gospel of Jesus Christ, these were people that he had learned to know in other settings at other places. And so he greets uh, these uh, many people that are part of the, uh, the church at Rome. Um, and uh, in doing so, he not only sends them greetings, but reflects on how they have contributed to his own life and to the lives of others. Uh, you know, after, uh, after reading uh, Paul's reflections of these men and women, uh, helps, it, it, it helps us see the kind of person that Paul was. You know, for, for most of my life, I pictured Paul as an some kind of austere theologian, having a rather severe personality. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, I do believe Paul had, was a, had, had a very intense personality. Uh, but uh, I also have thought over the years he must have had a very severe personality. Um, you know, I, I picture him as being small of stature, with a partially bald head who never laughed or enjoyed a good cup of coffee. <laughs> you know? Um, but, uh, but reading this section where Paul greets and reflects uh, makes me understand that Paul surrounded himself with people and needed others as much as they needed him. Um, and furthermore, uh, these greetings show us that koinonia was not just an ideal that uh, Paul promoted, but it was something that he experienced and practiced and reveled in 
uh, in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a profound way, on a deep level. Also from this list of men and women that Paul greets, we are given a, uh, a look at an interesting cross-section of people, Christians, um, who uh, that uh, of men and women that that help us understand what the normal Christian, if I can put it that way, was like in the first century. So, uh, so if you if you decide to read this again, keep. Keep those things in mind, and it sort of opens up some doors of understanding of uh, the church uh, in, the, uh, in the apostolic times. I, uh, I will not look at all of uh, these uh, people Paul greets, but I will look at a few of them. And uh, as I see the time slipping by, that uh, I, I'm going to have to limit it to a very few, and I don't know how to, to go through my, my uh, notes here and pick out those few that I will talk to you about. But, um, but let me notice, first of all, then, that Paul introduces us to uh, a woman whose name was Phoebe. Uh, and he introduces Phoebe to the church in Rome. And uh, I want to, I'm going to read that, uh, the first uh, couple of verses. Um, I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Sancria. Sancria was uh, sort of like a twin city to Corinth on the east side of the isthmus, uh, where, where the city of Corinth was. Uh, located. Uh, and so uh, there seemed to have been not only a church in Corinth, but also a church in this little, this town called, or this city called Sancria. Um, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has need of you for indeed she has been a helper of many and of myself also. So here you have this, uh, this uh, sister, as Paul calls her in the church, one of the saints. Um, and uh, it is thought that Phoebe is, uh, must have been a widow lady, sister, uh, or an older single sister who had never been married in the church, and she was part of that church. Um, it is also thought that she carried this epistle of Romans to the church in Rome. Uh, it was Paul's way of, uh, of, of uh, getting this this letter that he wrote to the Romans, to, to Rome. And so it, it is thought that she probably carried this epistle to the church in Rome. 
This is very important to Paul that, that this happens. But notice that Paul refers to as a sister uh, in the Lord as, and as a servant to the church. Uh, the interesting thing is that the word servant here in Greek is the word deacon or deaconess. Uh, so he calls her a deaconess, in, indicating that she had ministered to the needs of many in the church, including himself. Um, it gives us uh, an interesting portrait of this, uh, what must have been a very mature uh, um, sister in the church. Paul recommended her to the church in Rome and asked that the, them to receive her in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her during her stay in Rome. You know, it was about six, seven hundred miles across the sea to the city, to the city of Rome. And so this was an, an extensive uh, journey that uh, probably took a couple months. Uh, and uh, it was uh, uh, that, and we're not told what her business was, what, why, why this trip, but uh, we can understand that it was an extensive trip and Paul commends her that, and asks the church in Rome to uh, look after her, her stay with them. Well, I also have to uh, just notice the, uh, what Paul says in verses 3 through 5 about uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Um, and, and so uh, Aquila and Priscilla, uh, you no doubt know of them because they're mentioned six times in the New Testament, uh, beginning in the book of Acts. And whenever they're mentioned, they're always mentioned together as a husband and wife which to me indicates that they were a devoted couple who ministered to others together as a team. Um, and uh, we, we first encounter them in Acts chapter 18 when it, where it mentions that they were expelled from the city of Rome when Claudius the emperor uh, forced all of the Jews to leave the city because the Jews had rioted against the Roman government at that at one at point, and so uh, Claudius the Empire uh, expelled all of the Jews, and being Aquila and Priscilla were Jewish, uh, they, they also were expelled. They met Paul in Corinth during his second missionary journey, and like Paul, were tent makers. Um, they assisted Paul in, in ministry in Corinth, as well as in Paul's extended ministry of the gospel in the city of Ephesus and the surrounding area. Uh, and, and like Paul indicated, uh, it doesn't tell us this anywhere else, it indicated that somewhere along the way they, they, they put their lives on the line for Paul. Um, they risked their, their lives for Paul. Uh, and so uh, they were also uh, well-known 
uh, throughout the Gentile churches in an extended kind of way. <clears throat> well, there are just, uh, so we could go on and on. There are many, many interesting people that Paul talks about. I, uh, I, if, you, if you are interested, I encourage you to, to take these and, 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 and read them and do some research and discover um, uh, what, uh, some things about these, these people. Uh, these people are uh, of different, uh, have different status in society. Uh, Paul greets, uh, in verse 10, he uh, greets those who are of the household uh, of Aristobulus. <clears throat> well, uh, Aristobulus was a grandson of Herod the Great, <clears throat> who lived as a private citizen in the city of Rome. Paul doesn't indicate that he was a Christian, uh, but he indicates that some of his household were, were, were believers and were members of the church in Rome. Uh, this, uh, those of his household could have been referred to extended family members <clears throat> from uh, the, the grandson of Herod the Great, or it could have been slaves, uh, servants, slaves, that, uh, from his household that were members of the church in Rome. Um, well, uh, they, they were known, they were, uh, uh, Paul somehow knew them personally. And then there was Tryphena and Tryphosa. Um, and uh, they must have been called the Tri-Sisters. <laughs> uh, and and surely, surely they were probably twins according to their names. Uh, they are greeted along with Pers Persis, as ladies and who labored much in the Lord, and Paul doesn't explain how to do that, but uh, they didn't sit around. They got involved in the needs of people. They labored much in the Lord. Um, they were known to put out and meet other people's needs, uh, not only in the church, no doubt also uh, in, uh, in, in the city. Well, I, I can't... Uh, pass over all of these without looking, just taking notice of Rufus and his mother, as you have it in, in verse 13. It says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Uh, very few details about this, but in Mark chapter 15, verse 21, it tells us that one Simon of uh, a, a Cyrenian was compelled to carry the cross to Golgotha for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Well, uh, it is thought that this Rufus mentioned here was the son of the same Simon, and that the mother was Simon's widow. Um, Rufus was referred to as one of the Lord's chosen servants. And Paul must have been a guest in their house, in their home, uh, sometime in, during his travels, and uh, must have been a, been a recipient of her motherliness. I don't know how. Marcus Lind has this to say about her in his commentary 
uh, on, on, uh, on, on Rufus' mother. Uh, and he says, it, is, it takes more than a woman to be a mother. But the mother of Rufus was one of those benevolent matriarchs who often spread out her wings to comfort a homeless itinerant missionary, one who possibly needed a seam in his garment mended, or a pleasant reminder not to leave before you take dinner with us. And don't forget, I have a little lunch to send you with you when you go. <laughs> so uh, I think that expresses it well. He, he, he was a recipient of, the, of this woman's motherly heart. Well, and so you have these interesting uh, insights, in not only in, in Paul's relationship with these uh, men and women, but also uh, some interesting insights in what, uh, what they were, who they were, and, and some of the de few details of their lives. Um, you know, I, so I'm, I'm not going to continue looking at uh, Paul's uh, personal greetings to these people. Um, but uh, I hope it gives us, a, as we looked at, briefly at this, it gives us a picture of the network of people, saints, all of them for sure, that were an integral part of those who were part of Paul's life and ministry and uh, were a part of making his ministry effective uh, in the Lord. Well, and so you have these, uh, uh, ex this extensive section here in the first part of chapter 16 uh, in related to Paul's greetings. Uh, by the word, in, by the way, in, in chapter 16, uh, the word greet or greetings is uh, found 20-some uh, times. Uh, so it, 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 has to, it has a lot to do. Uh, it, uh, greeting, uh, sending greetings, and greeting one another uh, is an important part of this, uh, this chapter. Now, uh, there is, I, uh, in, in chapter 16, and verse 15, uh, Paul says that we should greet one another. Let me just begin with that phrase, greet one another. Um, have we considered the importance of greeting one another uh, in the body of Christ? Um, I, I get the impression from reading all that Paul says about greeting one another, sending greetings, etc., uh, that uh, there is something significant. There's something important to uh, followers of Christ, the saints, greeting one another. Um, this, is, uh, this, this must be more than some social custom, more than some uh, social nicety, uh, some social ritual. Uh, we perform. Uh, greet one another, Paul says. Um, may I suggest that, that by verbally and physically greeting one another, 
we affirm and strengthen the spiritual bond that we have one with another in Christ. I, I believe it has the, the, that kind of effect and potential for us. You know, it's, it's more than just saying, hi, it's nice to see you, <laughs> kind of thing. Goodbye, <laughs> till next week. There's more to it. Uh, you know, the, the New Testament refers to this deep, rich spiritual bond that we have with one another in Christ as the, the fellowship that we have with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and with each other who walk in the light. That's 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and verse 7. And as I indicated earlier, the Greek word used to express this unique life bond, as I may, as if I could call it that, uh, was koinonia. So when Paul sends his greetings to these 20-some individuals in the church in Rome, he was affirming them as fellow heirs of Jesus Christ. And there was a commonality between them. <coughs> and in the same way, when we greet each other in the church as part of our worship service, we're affirming and celebrating our oneness in Christ. I really believe that. And the fact that we are heirs and joined heirs with Christ, according to Romans 8, verse 17. So greet one another. And as I thought about this, I thought back before the, uh, the virus came. <laughs> uh, are we going to start thinking about before and after? Will there be an after? Edna's doctor said to her the other week that he thinks we'll still be dealing with this a year from now. Is there going to be an after? What's going to come after? Is it the coming of Christ? Think about it. Is this a prelude to something more? I don't know. I'm not a prophet in that, on that level. But, the, but as I thought about how before... <laughs> how few people I greeted on a Sunday morning, maybe one or two or three. You know, somehow I, I began to be convicted about that. Greet one another. And, 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 and John has an interesting way of putting it. In, in Third John, you can read that somewhere, he says, Greet each one another with, by name. You know, our names are important to us. So go ahead and, and greet, greet by name your brother or sister. Uh, that can be very meaningful. But greet one another. Um, it's important uh, as a part of our worship together as the body of Christ, that we uh, give recognition to that uh, commonality and bond that we have one with another. Well, I'm about halfway through. Um, I, uh, but uh, will, you, will you give me another 10 minutes of your time before you fall asleep? 
and uh, I'll, I'll try to uh, uh, bring this to a, to a close in bits and pieces. Um, but, but notice uh, also that he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And here Paul instructs us how we should greet one another in the body of Christ. Yeah, I'm aware, and you're probably also aware, that historically, the Mennonite church has looked at this practice of the holy kiss as one of the ordinances of the church. I, uh, I find it interesting that most com- contemporary evangelical commentaries dismiss this practice as being culturally specific, a cultural expression of greeting that is not to be taken as a permanent aspect of the apostles' doctrine and teaching. It talks about in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Um, in other words, that the way we greet each other as saints should be appropriate to the culture we find ourselves in at any given place and time. As I remember it, I, that was also the conclusion that some arrived at in a Sunday school discussion we had some uh, months ago now. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, frankly, I, I was also, it was also a conclusion I would have agreed with some years back. But this morning, I, I feel led to challenge uh, that conclusion, that this is something that is merely culturally specific. Um, consider at least three or four things here real quickly. Number one, greeting with a kiss. And I take this to be not a kiss on the lips, but a kiss on the cheeks of each other. Greeting with a kiss was a common Jewish um, people greeting, how they greeted each other, and that showed commonality, respect, and honor to one another. Evidently, take, uh, take for instance the kiss that Judas gave Jesus when he met him in the garden to, and betrayed him with a kiss. Uh, but that uh, evidently, uh, it was normal for Jesus and his disciples to greet one another in this kind of way, with a kiss on the cheek. And so um, even though Judas then turned that normal, natural uh, act into a kiss of betrayal. So take that into consideration. It was normal for Jesus and his disciples to do this. Secondly, please note that greeting with a kiss was not a common Gentile way of greeting one another in Paul's day. Gripping each other by the wrist was the common way Romans greeted each other, especially men. The handshake was already 
a common practice during this particular time. It was a common practice, especially in the Greek culture of Paul's day, as a way of greeting each other. Uh, the, the handshake came into practice uh, several hundred years before Christ, during the, uh, the Greek empire. And so it was uh, in vogue at this particular time. Furthermore, take, into, take note of the fact that uh, the command to greet each other with a holy kiss is given five times in the New Testament. It is given once by Peter when he writes to Jewish churches scattered in heavily populated Gentiles area. You have that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 14. It is given four times by Paul, but not especially who he gives it to. He doesn't give it to the, uh, to the, the heavily Jewish churches in, scattered across Asia Minor, but who does he give it to? Well, he, uh, he gives it to the newly formed Gentile church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 5.26. It's twice given to the predominantly uh, uh, Gentile church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 16.20 and 2 Corinthians 13.12. And it's given here in Romans 16.16 16, to a predominantly Gentile church had probably had the most diverse membership of uh, any church in the New Testament. Yes, there were some Greek Jews, but there were Greeks and Romans and barbarians and Scythians and, 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 and bound and free. There were slaves, <laughs> a very diverse uh, um, people group. And, and it's, it's to these Gentile predominantly Gentile churches that Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Is that significant? My, my question is this. Why was this command given to mostly Gentile churches if it was intended to be applied in a culturally appropriate manner? There's a fourth consideration here. One is that according to the writings of the church fathers, greeting one another with a holy kiss was practiced for several hundred years after the apostle passed off the scene. According to a writing compiled in the fourth century called the Apostolic Constitution, the church was practiced, still practiced it during this particular time in the fourth century. In fact, I find this very interesting. In fact, greeting one another with a holy kiss seemed to have been a formal part, a formal part. Yes, a formal part of the church service. Men and women were seated separately in their assemblies, and as a part of the service, in a formal way, they would have a time when they would greet one another and, uh, and with a holy kiss, men with men and women with women. So greeting one another was a formal and an important integral part of their worship service. In this way, all, of, all received a greeting of brotherly love as a token of the fellowship of 
the saints. I quote Lenski, who differs from, uh, who is an older commentator, when he says, this was an established ceremony. Each person turned to his neighbor in the assembly and both bestowed and received a kiss. And this bestowal and receiving expressed the fact that they were were in true spiritual accord. Well, um, I, uh, by now you understand that uh, I believe that this was a, uh, a, uh, a command, an apostolic command that uh, was given to the early church as a part of the apostles' doctrine and teaching. Well, let me quickly draw things to a close. Um, and uh, sorry, Ivan, but I'm not going to be able to uh, talk about Satan's defeat. We know he was defeated. And I, I only would ask you, why serve a defeated tyrant? Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, we want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in <clears throat> verses 21 through 23 of Romans chapter 16, uh, eight of Paul's fellow servants, uh, uh, fellow workers, uh, greet the church in Rome. And there would be some interesting details related to that. But let me, let me uh, close um, by uh, pointing out that in, uh, from the end of chapter 15 to the end of chapter 16, Paul closes this extensive exposition, the doctrine of salvation and his extensive uh, exhortation to 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 live faithful to faithfully the Christian life that he brings this uh, epistle to a close not with one doxology not with two doxologies but with three meaningful doxologies And so the first doxology is in chapter 15 and verse 33. And this is is a doxology of peace. Then you have a doxology of grace given in chapter 16 and verse 20. Um, And... uh, but, but it's really, uh, I would really like to uh, uh, read in closing this morning uh, the last doxology by which Paul closes this epistle to the Romans. And this is the, the final and most extensive doxology. Um, I, I don't understand why he, he, uh, uh, you, he gave three doxologies, but... But, but uh, there it is. Uh, but I would like for us to be dismissed this morning by standing together, and I'd like to, to read the uh, final doxology, verses 24 through 27. Would you stand, please? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel 
and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone, wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen.